Welcome to Equus Farm Calls, where we take horse owners along with us to discuss important topics on equine health and care with industry experts. Today, we're talking to Dr. Martin Nielsen about equine deworming. The Equus Farm Calls podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Farnham. I'm Kim Brown, group publisher of the Equine Health Network. Dr. Nielsen is a professor of equine infectious disease at the University of Kentucky's Clark Equine Research Center, and he's the associate chair of the Department of Veterinary Science. He's also the director of graduate studies. Dr. Nielsen is the lead author of the AAEP Parasite Control Guidelines, which is available to veterinarians and horse owners online. Originally from Denmark, Dr. Nielsen joined the Gluck Center in 2011. And just to let you know, in the Equus article that goes up with this podcast, you can go to the equusmagazine.com website. I will link not only to this AAEP Parasite Control Guidelines, which really every horse owner should read, but I'll also link to Dr. Nielsen's YouTube channel where he has got individual YouTube videos, and he's very good at these, um, on different parasites and deworming and just anything that you would like to know, more than we can get into in just a short podcast. And also I will put a link up to the Gluck Center's Facebook page because there's a lot of great research coming out of the Gluck Center. So good morning, Dr. Nielsen, and welcome. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for the introduction. Well, just to let our audience know, Dr. Nielsen is a global superstar in the equine parasitology world. He's also a strong proponent of research-based deworming and the study of anthelmintic resistance, which is when the worms aren't killed by current deworming methods and medications. And before we get started, Dr. Nielsen, I know this is an audio, so it's not a video, and so our, our listeners can't see what I'm seeing, but besides the jar of, of uh, uh, worms behind your head on your shelf in your window, I see a couple of awards back there. What are those for? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, always uh, you always want a, a jar of worms in your office when you do what I do. But uh, yes, I, I, um, I kind of I mean, the, the videos that you mentioned that I have on my YouTube channel, I, um, I was made aware of a an equine film festival that actually also goes by the name of Equus. It, it's a little confusing. It has nothing to do with the, with you or the journal or the magazine, but um, it, it, it sort of goes by that same name and has been going running for about 10 years. Um, and um, so the director of that heard about some of my efforts and reached out to me and said, hey, Dr. Nielsen, will you consider maybe, you know, entering a film? And I'm like, yeah, you know, obviously not that kind of stuff that I do, you know, red carpet and, and anything like that. It's just me doing some silly videos with my phone. And then she said, no, 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 no. That's perfectly appropriate for this audience and we do have an educational category and so I was like okay well why not and so I submitted um, two years uh, first year I had a, a series of videos that I submitted and um, one the category I, I, I'm not really sure how many other entries that were in that category I'm, I may have been the only one but, but you know but it's still a recognition and then I wasn't really all too happy with those videos I kind of you know did some rookie mistakes in terms of how I, I decided to, um, to format them so I thought okay I, I have a better idea and so that's what led to this uh, series that I called the parasite journey of the horse and and it's a series of videos each a video is about one of the parasites and I go in the sort of order of appearance, you know, so what parasite 
do foals get and as they get older, what other parasites are now coming in and dominating the picture and what can we, what do we know about them and what are good things to sort of tidbits to, to take home and, and maybe think about when you, when you consider parasite control. So that was this, that was the next year's entry. And then I won again. So yeah, that was pretty neat. Uh, so I'm a, I'm an award-winning filmmaker for what it's worth. <laughs> well, that's great. And Hey, and you, and you won awards on worms. Come on. That has yeah. got to be a, a world-class uh, world standing award because who else could do that? Right. Uh, there's, there's nobody stupid enough to try. <laughs> so as you all can tell, Dr. Nielsen is, is not only a, a wonderful scientist, but he's a fun guy. And before we get to, you know, what he talks about, you know, the modern deworming and the future of deworming, I want you to hear a little bit about his research at the University of Kentucky, because just in the last decade or so, when since he's been at the Gluck Center, he's really learned a lot, but he has a unique program there. So tell us a little about your research and your, your research heard. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I was actually tallying up not too long ago. We were asked to sort of do that here at the university. Okay, what have you done, Dr. Nielsen? What have you done for me lately kind of a deal? And so, and, and that led me to tally up, okay, how many papers, research papers have we published uh, since I I arrived uh, now over 10 years ago, and it's it's more than 100 papers we published, research wow. papers. And then there's all the additional stuff, all the communications like the podcasts we're doing today, the videos we just talked about, all the all the horse equine, horse journal, horse magazine papers and all that additional stuff. I mean, we've done a lot. And I came here, I came to the Gluck Center because of the opportunity to really delve into research and because of the resources that are available here, the expertise. I, I just thought it was a unique environment. And one of the major resources and major draws for me was the, the herds that you just mentioned. So we do have two specialty research herds here at uh, the university designated for parasitology research. And they've been here since the 1970s. I mean, they've been here for a long time. They've been maintained, nurtured, taken care of very well by our farm staff. And my predecessors here in this office, Dr. Um, Legendary now, uh, Eugene T. Lyons, and also his compadre, um, Dr. Hal Drudge, they established these herds and had some ideas. One of these herds is, um, it's actually a herd of miniature horses, and they harbor multidrug-resistant strongjaw parasites. So strongjaws are the common type of parasites that all horses get. And it also, you know, uh, the those parasites in these miniatures are resistant to two out of three uh, drug classes, and so multi-drug resistant. And that is actually that's very very common around the world in man. It's horses that horses actually have parasites that are multi-drug resistant and commonly resistant to two out of three uh, out of three drug classes. So now when I think of this herd, I kind of think of it as a mini simulation oh. uh, of a real uh, life scenario and it uh, it allows us to ask a lot of questions about what you can do in the face of already re developed resistance with the currently available dewormers and are there strategies that would work better or worse in terms of you know double deworming com combination deworming and we've also uh, we have a big project going on for now several years that is actually looking at a bacterial um, dewormer. So bacteria that are producing 
a certain uh, uh, crystal proteins. And some of those proteins that these bacteria make are actually killing worms. So now we're working on trying to get uh, those proteins to sort of pass through the intestinal tract without being degraded before they meet the worms so they can do the thing against the worm. I um, I launched uh, many years ago, one of the first sort of online things I ever did was to launch a uh, crowdfunding campaign. And, and you're very aware uh, of this because you actually advised me on some of this uh, many, many years ago now. And I, I named it, Let the Germs Get the Worms. And, you know, that's actually still what we're working on here. And we, we've got some promise. Uh, we were we just published a paper showing that the, the crude proteins without any kind of coding or, for, or formulation uh, completely eradicated or eliminated, I should say, uh, the large roundworms from foals that are a major parasite pathogen. And um, we published that data. Now, what was puzzling was that uh, in the same foals, they also had strongyle parasites, which the parasites I just mentioned all horses have. And so the foals also had those and uh, the proteins had no efficacy against the strongyle. So we got we wiped the ascarids, the large roundworms out, but the strongyles didn't care. They couldn't care less. And so now we're like investigating. We know when we do it in the lab in vitro um, and you so put the worms in a Petri dish, add the protein on there, they die. Right. And so we know uh, the protein should have the efficacy. So there's something else going on and we're working to really unravel, okay, what might that be? Is there some kind of coding that we can provide that would protect the protein passing through the stomach acid and then the entire length of the small intestine before uh, it reaches where the strongyles lives, which is actually in the large intestine. So. That was one example of some of the work we do. Um, a lot of other things we've worked a lot on developing and refining a better diagnostic te techniques for parasites. I think you know, there's, there's a big, big push these days uh, for testing rather than just blind treating. Uh, now with all the drug resistance that's around, you don't, you can't really be assured that any dewormer might, you know, will work at all as you as you think it should uh, without actually testing for it. So that sort of increases the demand for better, easier, more reliable, more precise uh, diagnostic techniques. One of the things we've developed and validated here in the lab, which I actually think is pretty cool, is an automated egg counting system uh, called Parasite, uh, S-I-G-H-T because it takes a picture of the sample after some filtering, adding a stain, and then it's, it's, a, it's an algorithm. It's actually an app that then analyzes the picture and counts all the eggs that are present on that picture and then gives you the egg count. And um, that's, that's developed here. It's now actually a product um, out there in the domain uh, and it's been taking off now also going into other animals. We started out with horses. I'm, I'm, I'm less involved with the other animals like the ruminants and the cats and the dogs, but I know that the, the guys that are, are sort of leading that in the company uh, are, are, you know, focusing a lot on that right now. Uh, so that's just another example. And then we, uh, we do a lot of work with um, just mapping out the drug resistance and how it's going and how it gets progressively worse. Uh, we are looking at the genetics uh, behind resistance to try and understand what are even the genetic mechanisms, the genes that are involved are genes that are expressed or shut down. And, and, um, and then, um, 
really just um, also testing potential new drugs in, in addition to the protein. We were also involved with, with other attempts to sort of come up with anything that's new. I think one of the scenarios, I mean, one of the sort of things to keep in mind is, you know, we don't have, we haven't gotten anything new for worm control in horses for the past 40 years. So we have what we have. We have the same classes of dewormers. And, you know, 40 years in, I mean, it's, some of those are getting a little old. And, um, and we are seeing uh, multi-drug resistance. I mentioned the scenario with the two out of three classes. Actually, we're now seeing uh, examples of three out of three classes uh, where so basically nothing works. And, and that sort of begs the question, what then? Right. So those are some of the questions we try to develop and address. And then ultimately it, it, it leads to things like the guideline document that you just mentioned, you know, uh, try to sort of distill all of what we do into, okay, this is now we've, what we have now learned and this is how we approach things now. Uh, and, and that's why we keep updating these guidelines. We do that about every three years. Um, so the current AAP guidelines were last updated in 2019, which felt like feels like just a, like yesterday, but it's already three years. So we're going to update them again, uh, actually this year. So that's good. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure our audience understands. I mean, you originally are from Denmark, but you have at the Gluck Center a global collaboration working on equine parasites. Tell us a little about that. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, so um, We've got so many collaborators and, and it, it's interesting. I mean, the equine, equine parasitology is actually a very, very small field. I mean, there's, there's veterinary parasitology, but most people working in veterinary parasitology work with either dogs and cats or uh, production animals, food animals, and, and primarily sheep, goats, and uh, cattle. Um, and then there's like this niche thing, which is horses there on the side. I think one of the reasons why there's not, it's not a bigger field is that there's, there's not that direct source of funding that really um, you can, you can sort of, you know, uh, apply to and get funding from. I mean, there's many, there's much more uh, funding available for food animal, uh, just through things like, like the USDA, et cetera. Um, so, so the few that are working at equine, we try to work together and help each other. So um, the, the, the bacterial protein, uh, the germs get the worms project is a, a it's a U.S. collaboration, but we were three currently three different institutions working together uh, here in the U.S. Each sort of bringing our expertise. So I'm I'm the equine guy. We have a we have a sheep gal, and then we have a, a human parasitologist, a medical parasitologist who who's who's doing the development of the proteins. And so that's a nice team effort, which is which has really been interesting. Um, and I just want to say, as, as a sheep owner, I can tell horse owners, you think we got problems with deworming? You should see those sheep. Indeed. Yeah. And, 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 yeah the sheep and the goats actually are examples of how bad things can go. Uh, there's lots and lots of examples where there's just nothing to treat them with. One of the parasites that are infecting uh, sheep and goats are really, really pathogenic. It's it's a blood sucking parasites. So we, if they get a good number of those, when they can, they can suck out all the blood and the animals just will just sort of die from from 
you know, losing all their blood. And so, so that's really, really bad. And in many cases, there's really nothing you can do other than maybe call the ones that are most worse, you know, worse affected and then keep the ones that seem to be handling their parasites because right. you don't really we're, have... We're talking about sheep here, not horses, yeah. but we're making the sheep. Comparison. Yeah. And in horses, so in horses, we're, we're sort of getting to the scenario where, you know, there's, there's multi-drug resistance. I think what helps us with the horses that is that we don't have a parasite that is as bad as that one in the sheep and then the goats. And I think that's important to keep in mind. I do get, I have a lot of conversations with people that go, oh, Dr. Nelson, we have a problem. Uh, can you take a look at these egg counts? And I see egg counts and I go, okay, okay, you have parasites or your horses have parasites. So what's the problem? Because it's normal for the horses to have parasites. So, you know, unless you have like health issues, you don't necessarily have a problem. And in most cases they go, oh, no, no, the horses are doing fine. We're just not comfortable with these egg counts. And then we have a conversation about, okay, you know, it's normal. It's, it's, it's part of the normal um, fauna of the intestinal tract for horses to have worms just as normal as it is for them to have bacteria in the gut. And I think sometimes you just need to come to terms with that um, sort of fact. But no, I have I have collaborations with uh, people in Scandinavia. Um, we're working a lot with um, trying to sort of come up with some new diagnostic options. Like there's this whole thing about we're learning that the worms are releasing little pieces of uh, RNA, which is, um, again, some nucleic, nucleic acids or some of the code, the genetic code, they're releasing that in short little bit of little chunks and releasing it into the bloodstream or wherever they are. And then some of these little uh, bits and pieces of uh, genetic code is mimicking or resembling similar pieces that the host, the mammal, in this case, the horse is making. So what are the worms doing? Are they trying to sort of fool the host or uh, maybe even modulate, affect how the host responds to the parasite? And it's really, really fascinating. And so we're, we're having a project uh, going that is looking at that. And then of course, maybe some of these little pieces of genetic code that's released by the worms might actually be diagnostic. And so might that be a better way of tracking some of these parasites. So that's one thing we're looking at. One of my grad students is um, very interested in the large roundworm and the population genetics of that. And so population genetics is where you take, you get a lot of different specimens from different places, and then you look at their genetic code and you see, okay, these worms from over here, how closely are they related to the worms from over here and the worms from over here? And if you get enough samples, you can also estimate the gene flow between populations. Now, that sounds very nerdy, and I admit it is, but but it's useful to, to get to understand these things because it, it teaches us how do these worms then spread things like genes for drug resistance? And how do we explain that every time you start like, identifying a new type of resistance to a new type of drug. And it, it, once it's first discovered and people start looking a little bit more, it turns out it's usually, it's usually everywhere. And so, okay, so it already spread. How on earth did that happen? I mean, we think and suspect that traveling horses that, you know, global travel with horses and, and, and each of them bringing worms to new premises and new facilities is playing a major role. But how exactly does that pan out, I think is a fundamental question that would help us understand how, how drug resistance evolves. Um, another big collaboration that we have is, is on the blood worm, which 
uh, is maybe that one bad parasite that we don't want in the horses. And we don't have it for the most part over here in the States, but in countries where there's been restrictions on uh, use of dewormers imposed and introduced um, in some countries, um, including my own country of origin, Denmark, uh, the drugs are on prescription only basis, only vets can prescribe them. So they're not used nearly as much there. Um, the dewormers are. And so, and when you don't deworm nearly as much, then all of a sudden that bloodworm can come back. And I actually documented that in Denmark just before I had to leave the country <laughs> and came here. Um, and, and so, um, and that was a joke, by the way, to our listeners, we, yeah. it's really hard to get Dr. Nielsen to come to the, the state. <laughs> yeah. So, so the blood worm is, is, could it be making its way back, especially if we sort of lessen the, the treatment pressure, the treatment intensity, because we don't want to propagate more resistance. And then we may be able to slow down development, development of resistance, but then as a <laughs> negative side effect, we could risk getting the bloodworm come back. So one of my other grad students is working on mapping out the entire genome of the bloodworm. And again, uh, to fundamentally understand how it behaves, it migrates as the worm, as the name implies, it goes to the bloodstream. How does it, how does it make, make it and how does it survive and how does it complete its life cycle and go back into the intestinal tract. And it does cause some damage while it, it's doing that. So how, how's that working out? So, so that's another project we were working on. Um, I, I tend to end up helping a lot of people just with study design, um, people that are in different parts of the world and wanting, they want to do a, a dewormer resistance study, for example, and how do you best approach that uh, with a good study design, the right group size and the right statistics and things like that. So I, 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 I help with that as much as I can. Um, a big collaboration I've had for many, many years is with people in New Zealand that are experts on disease modeling. And so what we do there is just to take everything we know biologically about uh, a given parasite, in this case, the, the small strongyals, and put it into a computer model, a computer simulation, and then have this computer predict how things are going to go uh, under different circumstances. So different treatment, different treatment protocols, but also different climates and even with climate change. And so that's been very, very interesting. And what it can tell us is then, all right, OK, uh, are we going to have more parasites or less parasites? And it does take into account the climate, the weather, the, the, the rain or precipitation, the uh, host response of the horses. So it, it matters whether the, you put a young group of horses or a middle-aged group or maybe some oldies in there and the, and the output of that model will be different. Um, so it tells us something about, okay, how many parasites will they will this herd get over the course of 40 years? Well, okay, 40 years is a little bit of an artificial situation because, you know, are we ever going to keep that same herd for 40 years? Well, there, <laughs> you know, but in theory, we need that longer time frame to really look at how things are going to uh, are going to pan out. And the other thing, and probably more importantly, that the models can do is is look at the development of drug resistance. And, and what we've been finding there is, OK, uh, not only does how often you deworm matter in terms of how quickly you get drug resistance, obviously that matters a lot. But what also matters is the age of the horses, their immune, their immune response to the parasites, and also the climate. 
different. Some climates will, will lead to quicker development of resistance than others. And climate change can also change how quickly and how fast you get drug-resistant uh, parasites. So, so that's been a big, big collaboration. I was able to actually go to New Zealand um, kind of just before the pandemic and, and spend what we call a sabbatical leave. It, it sounds like I, I went on vacation, I know, but that's kind of a thing we call it in academia where, where you just, you take your salary with you, you get approval from your employer, your university to go to another place and then do some work there for a while and, and then come back and enrich the environment with all the good things you learned. So I had the a wonderful opportunity to go there with my family. Uh, the kids went to school there. We spent six months in, in the country. I learned to drive the other side of the road for the most part and, uh, and did a couple interesting projects. Uh, all the computer simulation was one part of it, but we also did a nice field study of uh, horse farms on, on both, uh, both islands of New Zealand. So that's been a wonderful collaboration Keep your horse happy and healthy and get rewarded with free products at the same time. Farnham Horse Health Products and Vitaflex Pro are proud to celebrate the partnership between you and your horse. So they created the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. It's their way of giving back and provides an opportunity for you to earn complimentary, full-size supplements, fly control, and grooming products that you use regularly. Receive one free product for every five purchased at any online or local retail store. View a complete list of eligible products at horsecareloyalty.com. Enroll today and start earning your rewards. I'm also involved with uh, Australia. So in Australia, uh, they have four or maybe is it five different climatic zones. So very unique for one country. And so they don't really have any guidelines for parasite control in horses in that country. And they, of course, have been looking at the AAEP ones that are for North America and were like, okay, yeah, this may actually work for us, but then maybe it won't because of the climatic zones and, and also the desert and things that they have a lot of down there. So, so they, um, one of the, big name parasitologist in Australia uh, got a grant to work on getting more data that would allow them to develop uh, more sort of refined uh, recommendations for Australia and invited me as sort of the external guy who could be the guy who could maybe advise and bring suggestions. And so that's an ongoing project right now. It's been really fun to be part of. And I'm sure there's a bunch more uh, collaborations that are don't, don't remember right now. I've been helping people in developing countries um, getting papers um, written, well, studies done, papers written and published, because I think it's important to also look at some of these things under very, very different circumstances where it's working equids that don't have maybe the same quality of nutrition available to them and also very different climatic um, uh, conditions that definitely changed the whole dynamic of, of parasite control. So, so that's been very interesting as well. Yeah. And so now we're probably going to get into the, the part of the show where we're going to talk about, you know, what is the modern deworming protocol and management? But I think one of the things that you have made me recognize over the years is there's not a bad class of drugs. It's just how we use the drugs is different maybe from when they were first released. Cause I'm sorry, I remember I'm old enough to remember when Ivermectin first 
was introduced to the market. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the end all be all of everything. So there are different ways to use older anthelmintics that still will work. And they're still working against specific species. But we can't just think one tube squirt twice a year. We're good. So we have to think about the worms. We have to be educated as horse owners. And I'm a horse owner. We have to understand fecal egg counts. And I have to say that in some of the locations where I have friends, that the veterinarians are not real high on doing fecal egg counts. Um, so we have to figure out as horse owners how to bring our horses into this modern time. So we're doing the best job that we can. And we need to listen to our vets that are educated in trying to do the best that they can in keeping our horses healthy. So having a few worms in your horse is normal. Let's start there. Yeah. And, and so um, first of all, uh, yes, that was a very nice summary. I really appreciate that. I, I'm sorry that I happened to before mention how many years ago uh, ivermectin was introduced because that sort of might inform um, anyway uh, of your age, uh, but uh, <laughs> no, a common question I still get very often when I do uh, seminars and webinars is, hey, Dr. Nelson, what's a good all-round dewormer? And so, and I actually love it when people ask me that question because I can say, you know what, that doesn't exist. It's not a thing and, and you need to get away from that thinking. Uh, yes, uh, originally with the dewormers that we actually still have available to us, they were all sort of developed to be broad spectrum uh, and one broader than the other. And, and I think you're, you were spot on with your sort of description of when ivermectin came, because that's been the broadest ever dewormer because it didn't only de treat de worms, it also treated certain insects or insect larvae, including the bots that are not worms, but are insect larvae. Um, and it was hard for anything to compete with ivermectin, which is one of the reasons I think why we haven't seen anything new since then. Yes, there's, there's moxidectin, the Quest products, but that's actually just sort of a, a cousin to ivermectin. It's just a further development of, of a little bit of the same mode of action. So it belongs in the same family. And so, yeah, so each of, when you take each of, the, each of the three classes, each of them actually can sort of tell the same story where, you know, it used to have all of these parasites in its spectrum, and we can sort of streak out a few of those for each of the products. And so each of them still work against something, but they don't work against everything. And one of the many challenges we have with that is that, you know, uh, the labels, the inserts, or even on the outsides of the packages will mention, it will list all the species names, all the parasite names in fancy Latin names that it has label claims against. Um, and it actually gives a false impression because that's misleading. That's what the world looked like when the product was first approved, which for many of these products is more than 25 years ago. And, you know, a lot of water has run under the bridge since uh, mid 1990s, for example. And what these labels or inserts do not recognize or even acknowledge is, uh, you know, the development of resistance to this product. And you still see 
advertisements that you know make the statement that this product is the only product that's labeled against this that and the other parasite which is a true statement but it doesn't sort of acknowledge the fact that yeah it may be labeled but it's probably doesn't work right and so um, there's a lot of unfortunately a lot of misleading information about this out there and i think uh, when i talk to horse owners and veterinarians a lot of them sort of say oh there's so much conflicting information around about the about equine parasite control it's so difficult to navigate a maneuver and it's hard to sort of figure out what to do and i say tongue-in-the-cheek comment here but i say i yeah I, I agree but what you really need to do is just to do what i say then we'll be fine um, and, and you know tongue-in-the-cheek but yeah what i what i mean there is that i am you know, I, I'm unbiased in the sense of my only uh, aim is to just provide the evidence-based recommendations. And I don't have a, have an agenda of, of, you know, selling a particular product. And some of the drug companies actually spread very useful information also. They're very capable of it and they're good at sponsoring events, et cetera. But there's some bias in there from time to time. And I can cite numerous examples, unfortunate examples. It's just part of the world that we live in. And so, yeah, each of the three classes of dewormers, so we have the ivermectin moxidectin, then we have all of the benzimidazole. So that's where we have fenbendazole and oxybenazole in this country. Um, I hate to sort of sit here and mention product names, but often that's how people know these. So things like um, anthocyte and panicure, for example, belong to that class of benzaminosol dewormers. And then we have all of the Pyrantel products. And that's where you have the strongit type, um, strongit type products. Those are the three classes. And each of them still work well against at least some parasites, but they don't work against all of the parasites on the label. And um, just this morning, I think I, I I'm helping out with one of the big Facebook groups calls called Horse Vet Corner, and where yeah. horse owners can ask questions and veterinarians answer. And I'm one of the vets answering, and I sort of just check every morning. I check if there's anything about worms. And this morning there was a question about uh, it said something along the lines of, with all the different dewormers available, which one do you recommend? And you know, <laughs> you could probably predict what I said. Well, I said you you're not. There's a part missing from your question here, and uh, let me help you. I said, with all of the different worms that horses can get, what should we recommend? And point being here, you need to test, right? And, and, and you need to find out, uh, best example is in a young horse that might also both have the strong child type parasites and the ascarid or large roundworm type parasites that you might see in a in a weanling in a in a short yearling, and you need to know whether only one of those is present or both, uh, because that will affect your choice. There is really unlikely to be any dewormers that would effectively treat both anymore. That's just how the resistance has developed. So typically, the drugs that work well against the ascarids tend to not work at all against strong giles and vice versa. But the good news is that we still have, probably still have, for the most part, one that would treat at least each of these two. So there could be a situation where we need to treat with one type of drug or the other type of dewormer or sometimes even both, depending on the test result. And so that's an example of where you need to know what you're treating and not all worms are the same. Um, also, one kind of parasite I get a lot of questions about is the pinworm. Pinworms, yeah. because I think they're 
visible. I think they're very common and you, you can see them in horses of all ages. Mostly, uh, most of the time they don't really cause much harm, but it does cause the, the itching and the tail rubbing. Um, and, and the type of question where a horse owner sees some worms in the poop of their horse and they take a picture and they either send it to the veterinarian, which I'm sure happens a lot, or they put it on the places like uh, horse vet corner and go, which worm is, it, is this and how do I get rid of it, right? And so uh, it's another parasite that has a, no a different resistance profile and different um, different sort of considerations to be had. Uh, I do have a video about pinworms on my YouTube channel, just full disclosure, so you can you can learn more about that there. So, so that's one part that you need information about. Now, uh, the pinworms, you don't, you can't really detect them with egg count. So there's a different technique for that. And I won't get into the details, but there is a test for pinworms as well. Um, but the other, uh, just as important part, before we can really answer that question of, hey, what should I deworm with, is to find out what the what the levels of resistance are in your herd or the, the herd that your horse lives in. And again, there is a test for that. And uh, we call it the fecal egg count reduction test, where you look at the percent reduction following deworming in uh, preferably a group of horses. And that's the one thing I'm pushing all that I can uh, that, you know, that's where things should really start today. You know, when you when you're like, okay, what should I test for? Well, first and foremost, you need to test what you're doing. You're the dewormers that you are using to see if they even work uh, and then go from there. And I still don't see a lot of people doing that. They're like, they may be considering some egg counts to find out, um, you know, if their horses have worms. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, your horses have worms. That's not the question to ask. It's more, you know, what works and what types of worms we're finding. And so again, I do have a video on that <laughs> um, and, and really trying to get these messages out. And so, yeah, as you said, Kim, uh, the good news is that there still appears to be uh, a place for each type of product that we have, even though some of them are very, very old, but uh, time is running out. And we have in the last couple of years published um, evidence of, of lots of ivermectin and moxidectin resistance in strongyle parasites, which was sort of the last standing, still effective uh, class of dewormer. And, and now we're losing that. And uh, I'm actually just this morning finalizing yet another paper on that. And yeah, we've been talking about it. We've been maybe even crying wolf about this a little bit for too long. Like, oh, it's just around the corner. It's just about to happen. And it's drug resistance in, in parasites uh, are, is very slow to develop, much slower than you see with bacteria and antibiotics, for example. It's very, very slow. But once it's there, it never goes away and there's no turning back. And unfortunately, it looks like, uh, at least here in central Kentucky, uh, we've hit that point and uh, we're actually sort of battling with triple drug resistance on some of the farms around here in pretty high-end fancy farms with fancy and great looking yearlings, but they have multi-triple drug resistant parasites. Uh, we also, uh, with that collab collaboration in Australia that I just mentioned, we've also demonstrated uh, moxidectin resistance there. And so it's, it is, it is, um, it's coming, it's here. And, and, and so we do need alternatives and uh, 
we've been looking at the pharmaceutical industry for a long time and they're very secretive. So we don't know if they're doing anything, but it, certainly we could really need something from the pharmaceutical industry, something new. Uh, should we ever get that something new with a new mode of action and no resistance developed to it? Uh, I think the big job for people like me is to make sure that we're not going to repeat all the mistakes from the past with carpet bombing and deworming monthly or every six weeks or every something crazy like that. Uh, uh, it, it's going to be a hard and tough battle, but uh, you know, I think we need to just get all the, the, the advice and recommendations out there whenever we, we, we get our hands of, of, a, of a new new dewormer. I want to make sure our audience understands because I'm a horse owner. And this is one reason we did this Equus Farm Calls is because I get to talk to Dr. Nielsen. He actually will answer my calls, whereas it's a little harder for everybody to try and get the answer from the experts. So I want to make sure that you understand that there are ways to deworm effectively. But it goes back to just what we do with everything else with our horses. Every horse is an individual, and we have to figure out what that horse needs. I'm not going to give my mare with PSSM type 1 bushel of grain. I'm not going to let her out on green grass. I'm not, I'm not going to give the miniature donkey that I have who could is an air fern the same feed or care that I'm going to give a thoroughbred that's off the track that the reason it has performed so well being in Kentucky is because the grasses in Kentucky were meant to raise beef cattle and put fat on them. So those hard keepers do real well. So we need to think as horse owners about deworming as an individual horse first. Then once we figure out, as Dr. Nielsen has has lectured me on over the years, is that once we figure out which one of our horses are the biggest shedders, and what our resistance levels are, then we work with the experts to say, okay, well, in this horse, my older quarter horse gelding, who's been around forever and was back in the day where, you know, he got a dewormer stuck up his mouth, you know, every, you know, three months, whether he needed it or not, because we didn't know if he needed it. He may have a little bit of problem with uh, the resistance. So we may have to go a different route of combining this drug and this drug and understanding what we're doing for that horse. Whereas the young horse, as Dr. Nielsen just said, gosh, if he's got pinworms as well as ascarids, that's that may be, again, two different products that we need to use. It's not a one and done anymore. So as horse owners, I think we've turned the corner on deworming to where we're responsible for individual management of our horses. And once we understand those, we can manage them better as a herd. Now, have I have I summarized what you have left? Yes, I think that was that was uh, an excellent summary. Uh, really appreciate it, uh, and actually love listening to it. I think um, uh, one thing I would add is yes, um, you know, maybe one way to summarize what you just said is that the the assumption that. You know, if one horse has worms, they all have worms is sort of true to some extent. Yes, they all have worms, but they don't have the same. And there's plenty of examples of with some of the parasites, for example, tapeworms. That's another one that we need to think about when we uh, when we consider how to how to 
uh, control parasites. So the tapeworms, you can have horses grazing side by side. One has tapeworms, the other one doesn't. It's just the way it is. And so there's so these general assumptions that, okay, this horse had worms. I saw worms in the poop. I want to deworm them all because now they probably all have worms. Yes, they all have worms, but they may, may not all need the same treatment. And, and it's, again, normal for them to have some worms. So it actually is beneficial for them to have some worms. And so, so yes, uh, we need to, to individualize our approach uh, and, and sort of have that um, granularity in how we approach parasite control. But at the same time, Kim, still keep in mind that it's a parasite population that we're handling here, and that's shared by all the horses. And so if we only deworm our own horse, and if we don't know what's happening to all the other horses in that herd and have no idea what they're deworming with, if they even are deworming, and are they deworming at the same time, or are they deworming inappropriately? If we don't have that sort of coordination, we don't really have a strategy. And that sometimes is the big challenge when you have like a boarding stable uh, where each uh, horse owner owns one or two horses and they they kind of tend to use their own veterinarian and some boarding stables have done a great job saying you know if you board your horse here uh, we have this one veterinarian who coordinates the parasite control program and does the testing and makes sure that we all follow sort of the same general principles here uh, but others sort of struggle with that um, but but I do I do recommend going in that direction of course uh, I think and I, I do have some great examples of it actually working out really well but because so so yeah so 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 parasite control is sort of a population uh, approach and you may only own one or two uh, horses out of that population uh, your the needs between the different horses is likely to be different but you still need to sort of have it coordinated so it's sort of a little bit of both you don't need to treat all the horses alike but you need to have what you do coordinated for the for that population right. that's not that's not easy always no it's not <laughs> it is not and even it's not easy if you're taking your horses on trail rides to shows and you think oh, i'm gonna get my horse out and let it graze a little bit or you've got the paddocks when you go to a trailhead and everybody grazes the horses in the little fields near the streams you're gonna pick up some parasites that don't live at your house <laughs> yeah yes you are uh not very many though i mean if they're only grazing for like a half hour or something like that is it's it's limited how many they'll pick up and also uh, you tend to find the same worms everywhere anyway uh it's not like you have oh we only have these species over here on this farm and the next farm we have different species i mean one famous parasitologist once said um <laughs> to kind of paraphrase a little bit but i think he said uh, i think of uh, of north america as one great pasture <laughs> shared by all the animals. And that's pretty much it. I maybe especially with the horses because of the moving and traveling and all. And so we tend to find the same species uh, regardless of the climate, not just within the United States, but between different countries. We also tend to find the same, type, same types of resistance to uh, the different drugs, although there are some differences, at least when it's first sort of popping its head up. I think for the when I said the two out of three drug classes scenarios, so those two drug classes are the benzimidazoles and the pyrantil products, you tend to find that everywhere in the world in strontial parasites. Now, where we might see some differences, at least for now, is regarding the resistance to the last class, the ivermexamoxidectin class. And that's where I said we were beginning to see it here. It's always been also been described in Australia. And I think now it's a matter of people starting to look 
in other places of the world, and they'll probably find that there as well. Uh, but it's still sort of spreading, and I, I think at least for a few years we'll see that you know it's not something you find uniformly everywhere. There might be farms where there's no signs of resistance and farms with signs of resistance, and then we'll we'll sort of be able to track that and see that spread. Okay, so, so yeah. Let's, anyway, let's let's wrap up with a bullet point summary for horse owners. People like me on deworming, what do I need to be doing to do this right? You need to first and foremost test what you're doing. So you may have a program, a protocol where I usually deworm with this product at this point of time. I may actually be doing accounts because I heard somebody, some, some guy with a weird Danish accent say something about that at one point or somebody else. Um, so you may have a, a, a program in place already, but what I say is test the efficacy. So you need to follow up with, uh, with egg counts about two weeks after deworming and compare so to see if you got that reduction. There really shouldn't be anything two weeks after deworming uh, or it should be very low counts depending on how high they were before. So really that's where you need to start. You need to test uh, the dewormers that you are using that may have been recommended to you or maybe you've been using them for a, lot, for a while because you felt like they worked well. You don't really know that. So that's where you need to start. And once you may be finding that some of those don't work, that's where you need to talk to your veterinarian or find a veterinarian with particular keen interest in these things. I mean, veterinarians have each have their specialties and some tend to focus on, you know, I've heard sometime that there are other things in the world in the world of veterinary medicine, uh, you know, besides the worms, I, I, you know, I've heard about that. But obviously, nothing as important. But I mean, there are other areas of specialty where people tend to maybe not really say, "Well, worms is not my thing." But other vets do, right? So you need to find those vets that can advise you on what to do, and maybe adjust your protocol. So, so really simply put, that's kind of what you need to do. Um, and then you can discuss with your vet, okay, what are the appropriate times of year? You know, consider the, the age range of my horses. Do you have only adults? Do you have geriatrics? Do you have young stock? Do you have foals and yearlings and, and two-year-olds? I mean, the recommendations will change depending on what age groups you have. You know, I want to say the easiest age group to, to handle parasite control-wise is the middle-aged adults. The Let's say five or six up to 15, maybe a little bit older than that, years of age, right there in the middle, that's where you could be the most laid back. Yes, they'll have some tapeworms that you need to think about. They will have small strontiolus, but they usually are not affected by them at all. And then you might, you know, run into some questions surrounding the pinworms we talked about, maybe bots. But for the most part, they're doing well with their worms um, and not really having many issues. And once you get into really old horses um, and they have maybe some of the uh, metabolic issues that older horses can get, then you might actually need to pay a little bit extra attention there, additional testing, uh, consider maybe additional treatments. Uh, and again, with the young horses, that's where you have the highest risk of parasitic disease. However, I want to say parasitic disease is extremely rare in horses and um, is really the exception rather than the rule. So, so, you know, once you sort of, you have the 
first question addressed, which is what works? Um, then there's all these additional things to consider to maybe tailor the uh, parasite control program better to your horses. And and if you if you board your horse at a boarding stable, which many of your listeners probably do, you know, have a conversation with the owner, with the other boarders, and uh, maybe thinking about a little bit, simply put, can we coordinate a little bit what we do? Maybe just have everyone to agree on testing the dewormer efficacy and start there. Uh, I think uh, sometimes you need to sort of, you need an eye opener and it might be an eye opener to show that, hey, it isn't working. Uh, And what can we do instead? Well, thank you, Dr. Nielsen. I know this has been a little longer than most of our podcasts, but that's how it always goes with me. (laughs) Well, and I love this topic because it's something that horse owners can really we can take the lead on this. We can take charge of our horses and do a better job for them and for ourselves and for the future horses. So thank you, Dr. Nielsen, for being on the Equus Farm Calls podcast today. My we, pleasure. And we again will will do links on Equus Magazine's website for this podcast. The article will have links out to Dr. Nielsen's videos and and some of the other things that he has to offer. And we'll link out to the AEP Parasite Guidelines. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this podcast, which is new in 2022. So I welcome your input and hope you'll tell your friends about it. And if you have suggestions or comments, just contact me at kbrown, that's the letter K brown, at equinenetwork.com. Equus Farm Calls is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.